By 1943, at the height of World War II, the tide of the conflict was rapidly changing. Fascist Italy in particular suffered several setbacks. Disastrous defeats in the North African campaign and along the Eastern Front were taking their toll on the country's morale, and were beginning to drastically shift the public's opinion of their quote-unquote fearless duce. In addition, the Allied invasion of Sicily early that year brought the fighting right to Italy's doorstep. Allied bombings as well leveled much of the country. With her resources, namely coal and oil, nearly depleted in conjunction with a major food shortage, the outlook was bleak. With each passing day, more and more Italians began looking to outside sources, such as the BBC and Vatican Radio, for news and information, as they had all but lost their faith in Mussolini's propaganda machine. The public's dissatisfaction, however, finally erupted in March that year, when a series of labor strikes swept through the northern part of the country, which was heavily industrial at the time. In addition, the ever-increasing German presence in Italy began to drastically shift public opinion of Mussolini and fascism as a whole. Indeed, when the Allies landed in Sicily, a vast majority of Italians greeted them with open arms as liberators. It's important to note that opposition to both fascism and Mussolini was nothing new. In fact, it began way back in 1925, around the time Il Duce assumed control over Italy. But while any and all opposition to his regime in those early days had been immediately silenced and crushed, by 1943 such sentiment had turned into a full-scale resistance. There were, of course, those factions who remained loyal to fascism and its cause, but overall the Italian people had had enough. The result was a full-blown civil war which, for two years, rocked the nation to its very core, in the midst of the great socio political upheaval that was taking place at the same time. Welcome to part two of the Italian Civil War on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. It's July 19th, 1943. Benito Mussolini is in an increasingly fragile mindset, as his fears of an Allied invasion of the Italian mainland become more of a possibility with each passing day. With Allied General Dwight Eisenhower's armies having swept across North Africa in victory after victory, the Italian army is physically and mentally spent and on the verge of collapse. Il Duce fears that an attack on the Italian home front is the next logical step, and he turns to Hitler in a last-ditch effort to relieve his forces and preserve the fascist regime. Hitler had already dispatched troops to Sicily to aid the Italians, and their further presence in that country would serve as one of the catalysts for the eventual civil war. But that same day, the first in a series of Allied bombings of Rome takes place, sending the Italian dictator into an even deeper and darker despair. In addition, several members of his cabinet have by now turned against him and are on the verge of revolt. This forces him to summon the Grand Council for the first time since the war began four years prior, which he does five days later on July 24th. The President of Parliament, Dino Grandi, launches a scathing verbal and critical attack on Il Duce and proposes that King Vittore Emanuele III resume his full powers under the Constitution to drive the dictator out of office. Through it all, Mussolini remains stoic, only interjecting to urge Grandi to consider the possibility that such a measure would end fascism in Italy. But the motion is carried by a 19-8 to 8 margin, and though significant, has no legal merit as by law, the Prime Minister is responsible for his actions only in the eyes of the King, the latter of whom is the only authority who can remove him from office. But it's done. At exactly 5 p.m. the following day, Mussolini is personally summoned to the royal palace by Vittorio Emanuele himself, who had been planning to oust the dictator for some time at this point. No sooner is Il Duce dismissed that the role of prime minister is assumed by Marshal Pietro Badoglio, a general who'd served his country in both the Great War and the present conflict. No sooner has Mussolini exited the building is he arrested by the Carabinieri, the National Guard of Italy, on the king's orders, largely to preserve his own dynasty out of fear that it's becoming too sympathetic towards fascism. The government building and many of its offices are surrounded by Carabinieri as well, and Il Duce is whisked away, assured by these authorities that it's for his own safety, to a resort in Abruzzo in the Apennine Mountains, where he's completely isolated.
Meanwhile, Prime Minister Badoglio keeps up the pretense of being allied with Germany and will continue to fight alongside the Axis, but dissolves the fascist party two days after his appointment as leader, and just as soon begins negotiating an armistice with the Allies, which is signed on September 3rd, 1943. When it's officially announced five days later, however, it plunges the nation into complete and utter chaos. The Nazis respond by rushing to take over Italy in an emergency initiative known as Operation Achse, the latter word meaning Axis in German. As Hitler's forces advance toward Rome, Badoglio and the king flee to the Apulia region, the heel of the boot of Italy, establishing the democratic kingdom of Italy in the south of the country, and on October 13th declare war on Germany. While thousands of Italian troops are dispatched to combat the Nazis, several other Italians join on the opposing side, plunging the nation into civil war. And where's Mussolini in all this, you might ask? Remember when he was imprisoned, completely isolated on King Vittorio Emanuele's orders in Abruzzo and the Apennines? Well, on September 12, 1943, he's rescued on Hitler's authority by paratroopers and Waffen-SS commandos under the command of one Major Otto Harald Moos. The rescue single-handedly saves Il Duce from being turned over to the Allied forces in accordance with the aforementioned armistice. While Hitler immediately draws up plans to arrest the king, the crown prince, and prime minister Badoglio, and restore Mussolini to power, his plans are ultimately foiled as the trio flees further south to the island of Malta, putting themselves under Allied protection. Three days after his rescue, Mussolini is taken to Germany to meet with Hitler regarding fascist Italy's future. The Führer's solution is the establishment of the Italian Social Republic, or Salò Republic, so named for the town in northern Italy from which its government would be based, a German puppet state that controls the northern and central portions of the country. Naturally, Mussolini is installed as its leader, and it wages war on the Kingdom of Italy. The factions fighting in the Italian Civil War are divided into two categories, the Partisans and the Fascist Forces. The Partisans are comprised of the Italian Resistance, or CLN, the National Liberation Committee, an umbrella term for several unofficial civilian military groups that were formed to simultaneously eradicate the Fascists and drive the Nazis out of the country, and the Italian Co-Belligerent Army, the name applied to a series of army divisions out of the Kingdom of Italy in the south. On the side of the fascist forces are the National Republican Army, comprised of volunteers and draftees, loyal to Mussolini and sympathetic towards the Nazis, as well as the Black Brigades, a paramilitary group organized and run by the Salo Republic in the north. Between 1943 and the end of the war two years later, these four groups would clash head-on for supremacy over Italy, with help from both the Allies and Axis respectively. While the fascist forces have much greater influence in towns and cities, the partisans are confined mainly to mountainous regions. Though this may seem like a disadvantage, the truth of the matter is that such rugged terrain proves to be in the partisan group's favor, as large military formations like those of the Black Brigades and National Republican Army aren't as effective in such areas. This makes it easier for the CLN and co-belligerent army to fend them off. But despite being united for a common cause on both sides, it isn't always a unified front. The skirmish is often marred by infighting, with fascists pegged against other fascists, and resistance groups turning on one another for what they think was best for the country's future. Misunderstandings often lead to disastrous consequences, as is the case with the Portsus massacre of February 7, 1945. Communist partisans from the Gruppi di Azione Patriotica massacre some 20 members of the Catholic Brigate Osopo while fighting the enemy in northeastern Italy, having mistaken them for German spies. The event's still the subject of a great deal of speculation and controversy in Italy to this day. On the opposite side of the spectrum, a number of instances of dissension amongst the fascists and their Nazi collaborators also are recorded, particularly in regards to the number of German losses at the hands of Italian partisan fighters. Of all the places where the fighting takes place, however, perhaps none has it as bad as the capital itself. 
With the withdrawal of King Vittore Emanuele, his son, and Prime Minister Badoglio to southern Italy, Rome was officially declared an open city on August 14, 1943, meaning that neither the Allies nor the Axis are protecting or maintaining control over it, and is therefore up for grabs. No sooner is the proclamation announced to the Nazis storm into the city, occupying it in an attempt to maintain a fascist hold over the Italian peninsula. But the resistance the German overseers meet is nothing short of relentless. Not only do Italian freedom fighters clash with their own on the opposing side, but also with the Nazis, leading to some of the bloodiest conflict in civilian territory. Aside from historic footage of the battle itself, I highly suggest my listeners check out Roberto Rossellini's stunning 1945 neo-realist war film, Rome, Open City, for a more intimate and detailed glimpse into the plight of Rome's civilians under Nazi occupation. For nearly two years, Italy was ravaged by this civil war. So dire and chaotic was the situation that it hardly seemed the country would ever be relieved from the ravages of battle. But then, on April 25, 1945, hope loomed on the horizon as Allied forces landed in northern Italy, leading to the dismantling of the Salò Republic and the surrender of the Nazis a week later. In the midst of all the mayhem, Mussolini, his mistress Clara Petacci, and her brother, posing as a Spanish consul, made to flee to Switzerland, where they would all board a plane for Spain. But two days later, on April 27th, they were stopped near Lake Como by communist partisans of the 52nd Garibaldi Brigade. From there, they were brought to the municipality of Metzegra in the Lombardia region of northeastern Italy and were shot to death the following day on April 28th. In the early morning hours of April 29th, the corpses of Mussolini, Petacci, her brother, and a handful of other fascist politicians were dumped at the Piazzale Loreto in Milan. After being kicked and spat upon for most of the morning, they were then strung up from the roof of an Esso gas station, where the public proceeded to pelt them with rocks and rotten produce. This public display, in conjunction with boosting Italian morale, was done largely to deter any and all fascist sympathizers from continuing the fight. Following the Allied victory in Europe, Mussolini's body was buried in a mass grave in the Musocco Cemetery north of the city. On Easter Sunday in 1946, however, it was exhumed by three neo-fascists and disappeared for four months until it was rediscovered in August of that year in a small trunk at the Certosa di Piavia monastery just outside of Milan. Unsure of what to do with it, the authorities held it for ten years in stasis before it was returned to the town of Predapio in the Romagna region of Italy, the dictator's birthplace, where it was buried in the cemetery there. At long last, the Italian civil war was over. On June 2, 1946, modern Italy was born when the old monarchy was abolished by popular referendum in favor of a democratic republic, and a new constitution was drafted, which would formally be adopted on January 1, 1948. Devastated by both the greater global conflict as well as the infighting on their own soil, Italy suffered economic hardships well into the 1950s, but would come roaring back by the end of the decade. Indeed, the civil war is remembered as a stain on the nation's history, but one that had to be fought for the freedom of all her people and for the sake of her posterity. In the words of Simon Wiesenthal, freedom is not free, one must fight for it every day. It's a philosophy that most certainly applies to the Italian resistance and freedom fighters, who gave everything they had for a fair and just society. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this two-part episode on the Italian Civil War and found it both enlightening and informative. Did you know about the Italian Civil War prior to listening to this episode? Let me know in the comments of my latest Instagram post at History Loves Company. That's history underscore loves underscore company. I'll admit, while I had known that the country had switched sides at the height of World War II, I didn't know that a civil war had erupted as a result, though it absolutely makes sense. If you would like to support me to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. 
by visiting anchor.fm slash historylovescompany. Just click the support button and you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit any budget. Listening and sharing are big helps as well, so please do so on all major podcast platforms. Join me again next week as we dive headfirst into the past on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. See you then.